Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. Um, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this episode took quite a while to put together, um, but I'm quite excited about it. Um, I think this is one of my, I don't know, I feel excited because I get to do something I've not really done so much on the show, which is primary research. That's right. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's, I haven't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. That is, that is significant. Today, we are going to be talking about the building program in the church from the 1960s. Um, it's from our book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism by Gregory Prince and Robert Wright. All right. So when I read this chapter, Eric, um, it got me. I was surprised. Um, I didn't realize how much um, it would affect me because it turns out that this chapter on the building program is my life and my history. And I, and I, and I, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized how much building and architecture is in the Brewster family. Okay. You tell. Okay. So. The chapter talks about how lots of churches were built and it talks about finances and it talks about all kinds of interesting things. But for me, for my family, as it turns out, um, it's just all over, up and down the history. So my grandpa was a building missionary on my mother's side. One of the ones that's talked about in this chapter, and we're going to we're going to talk about this. My two uncles were heavily involved in the building program. Um, my mom and the whole family moved around all over Idaho, Utah, Washington, and even Alaska building churches. One after another after another. Like, I don't even know how many. Maybe 10. <laughs> and it's pretty incredible. And because of that, you know, of course, they never, they didn't stay in one place very, very much. Um, but it goes even farther than that. My, one of my kids is interested in architecture, right? My grandpa on my dad's side was a very successful architect um, in Hawaii. And then even my, um, my brother-in-law, that can't be right. My brother's father-in-law is the essential craftsman. Have you ever heard of him? No. Okay. The essential craftsman is a YouTube channel. Okay. With nearly a million subscribers and it has videos like skill saw pro tips, which has nearly 6.7 million views. Okay. <laughs> wow. I, I, I may never be the 6.7 and first. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Look, I, I, it turns out you watch some of his videos and you will find yourself having opinions on things like the shape of stakes, like square versus round. <laughs> like it is very cool. And anyway, so yeah. And I was so impressed by this family history that I called up my two uncles who are, you know, veterans and retired and, um, really amazing people and interviewed them about the building program. And uh, that's the primary research. We get to 
uh, learned something about what, what it was like to be on the ground in the 1960s. Cool. So the building program, uh, we should define a little bit. Um, they built a lot of buildings during David O. McKay's time. Uh -huh. Are your uncles old enough that they were building buildings while he was the president of the church? Uh, you are just, you're just setting me up with the greatest segues. I want to show you, um, Eric, uh, the letter. It's right there in the middle of the screen. Ooh. Go ahead. All right. So the church building committee acting under our appointment in an extensive church building program now in progress in the stakes and missions of the church has recommended you for special labors incident to this church building program to labor in the Northwest area. We understand that you have expressed your willingness to accept a call for this service. Your family will accompany you. We therefore call you and your wife to this service. And ex that, that's funny because um, it's addressed to brother and sister, but it says you and your wife, which, uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, personal comment. Uh, and it's just re interesting rhetorical choice, let's say. Mm -hmm. And extend to you in advance our sincere appreciation for your willingness to serve. You will labor under the direction of the area construction supervisor who will give you specific assignments for your labors and make provisions for your housing while you are so engaged. The church will provide transportation for you and your family to and from your field of labor and also arrange for a limited and stipulated expense allowance while you are engaged in these building activities. Does this letter remind you of anything? Uh, it's, a, it's a mission call. It's a mission call. So you and I both um, serve missions and we both read letters like that with our family. Rather similar, yeah. I do like how it, uh, in the first paragraph, it noted specifically that you have expressed your willingness to accept a call such as this. That's right. I mean, that um, was true for me also, but I don't believe it said that. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, my uncle Spencer. That was a dinner table letter. Oh, it was? Sometime. And we all talked about it. And then when we had all had our say, I mean, this was 1964. As a child, I thought I was participating. Mm -hmm. Later on, I realized I was an observer. <laughs> yep. uh, and that we were going to do this and move away from my childhood home where all my memories, all my growing up, everything had taken place. Right. Okay, um, and where was, this was in, in Oregon, right? Or no, this was in Idaho. in Idaho. In Idaho, that's right, in Idaho. So we went to Salt Lake, and the day that dad and mom went into the church office building to get set apart, we sat, kids sat in the office, and then they all came, the guy that did the setting apart came out, and told us we were all now called on a mission. Ah, okay. And they use that like a lever for the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Uncle Stephen. I remember, uh, yes, when mom and dad received this letter and they opened it and read it. And then they called all us children together. And one by one, they asked us our opinion on that. Um, they called all us children together and... Uh, read us the letter and ask us our feelings on, on the letter and uh, whether we would support them in doing that. 
And they prefaced that by saying, if any one of us didn't feel that we could do that, that they didn't, they were not going to accept the call. We had to be united as a family. Well, although my older sister had reservations and I had questions and reservations, I'm not looking forward to being pulled out of my peer group. And uh, I don't think Spencer particularly did. I think he was up for the adventure. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the way we did it. And we all uh, talked about it and all agreed that, yeah, we would, we would do that. It seemed like the right thing to do in a good adventure. And we were uh, faithful people and children. And we decided that that's what the Lord wanted and that we would support mom and dad in doing that. And we did. This letter um, I scanned in, I'm gonna include it in the show notes. Oh, wait, and... were they kids and it was their parents who were called? That's right. Oh, okay, I didn't understand that. That's right, they were both kids. Um, Uncle Spencer was uncle was about 10 or 12, and then Uncle Stephen was 15. That explains the time thing that I was confused by. Yeah, and you see the date on the letter is May 8th, 1964. Yes. And then, yeah, they all decided that they were gonna go. And they were started building churches. So the first one they built was um, up in um, up in Tacoma, and then they also built one in Idaho Falls. They built a stake center in Missoula, an institute building in Moscow, a ward building in Fairbanks in Tigard, Hillsboro, White Salmon, and they did work on the Beaverton Stake Center. And um, they just kind of moved around and did all these kinds of things. And um, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. That's um, fascinating. Like the way I understood it and the book did not disabuse me of this notion was that uh, building missionaries were just people from the local community who built that church. And then they would call different building missionaries for the next town. I didn't, I didn't realize that this was how it functioned. Yeah, there was this kind of supervisor um, like my grandpa was and he was kind of like a foreman and um, he had all the blueprints and everything. And um, what he did was is uh, he had some crew, right? Which we'll get to the crew in a bit. And then they had all of this donated time as well uh, from the local ward. And um, yeah, there's, there's a couple aspects of this program that we're gonna be talking about, I think in detail, right? One is donated labor, okay? Yeah. And the other is the service missionaries. Cause I've, I didn't know um, much about either of them. So those are kind of the two subjects we're gonna be, lo we're gonna be looking at here. Yeah, I mean, it's not much before our time, but it's still before our time. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, yeah. And, and the whole culture of donated labor in the church, it's still there, right? There are still service projects and moving crews and things like that. But the idea that you were going to build your church right? That's gone. Yeah, <laughs> nobody expects that anymore. That is very gone, okay? Um, so let's talk about shambles and gutters. What happened was that in the early, in like in the 20s and things, there were these, there was essentially no building of churches going on, right? Um, and um, there were three reasons, right? One was the Great Depression, okay? Yeah. One was the war. Okay. Two big reasons. 
two big reasons. And one was um, J. Reuben Clark. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what is he up to now? <laughs> okay. The third factor was J. Reuben Clark Jr., who had been a powerful and autocratic first counselor to church presidents Heber J. Grant and George Albert Smith. As both Pat, Pat presidents suffered declining health for several years prior to their deaths, Clark became the de facto church president, overshadowing McKay, the second counselor. Fiscally conservative, he made no secret of his aversion to what he viewed as exuberant spending oh, yes. on buildings. All right. I remember this. <laughs> we have a tendency, I think, to make our buildings just a little too elaborate and too ornate. He probably hated the Berkeley Ward building, <laughs> built during the Depression and lovely in every way. I read this and I just chuckled to myself. The Mormons are not particularly famous for ornate buildings. <laughs> no, but J. Reuben Clark was yeah, a man of his own opinions and they were very, very large opinions. But this is one of my favorite parts of the chapter or the parts that I found most interesting was how um, building a building was part of the permanence. We talked in an earlier episode about the international church and the move to have people stay in their own nations and build Zion there. And having buildings was key to that. Um, in fact, they were they were pretty explicit. Uh, I, I forget, I don't have the book in front of me. It, well, I do, I can see it, but I can reach it from where I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the quality of research I'm doing right now. But somebody in the chapter said that, um, we're never gonna get doctors and lawyers to join the church if we don't have a nice building. As long as we're meeting above a bar, we're never gonna get the kind of people to join the church who can really build the church. Um, Uncle Stephen. The people in Tacoma, when we got there, were holding their Sunday meetings in the Tiki Room, which was a bar. And it was on the second floor of a shopping mall. And so early Sunday morning, the older priesthood boys and the elders quorum would gather at the tiki room and empty the ashtrays, take away all the empty drinks, put yeah. a covering over the bar so the booze didn't show and uh, <laughs> put up our little nets for rooms uh -huh. and arrange folding chairs and a little sacrament table. And it was an amazing transition and it was those people were willing to do almost anything to have their own building. Okay, yeah, exactly. So they didn't have buildings. And in fact, it was just embarrassing the situation they found themselves in, right? And yeah, people yeah. don't wanna join that church if they have to go meet at a bar. It right? smells like a weird cult when you're meeting above a bar because that's all you can put together. That's right. Um, here's a quote from the book that's relevant. Headquarters back of a saloon and too large for the members of the church. I wish they had a better location and a modern church building. It is in fair condition and kept clean, but why do we also get in such poor locations and undesirable parts of the cities? I would like to sell the property and build a modern church building in a good location of the city and give people a chance to attend our services and our members a place where they are not ashamed to ask friends not of their church. Someday this present policy will be exchanged and the sooner the better. So here they're referring to the part to a policy where they just couldn't get buildings built back. Was that President McKay there. speaking? That was uh, a guy named Smoot. Senator, Smoot. Senator Reed Smoot. Oh, Reed Smoot. Oh, so we're a little before President yeah. McKay's time at this point. Yeah, that was that's true. So a couple of things I found interesting about that quote, as an aside, was 
desirable parts of the city and um, places where you're not ashamed to be. <laughs> I'm not particularly happy about language like that. <laughs> yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. Like there is something kind of romantic about um, about meeting in a bar, mm -hmm. uh, self-promotion for a moment. Mm -hmm. I have a short story called The Curse coming out in a collection uh, titled The Path and the Gate. It's coming out from Signature, I think, next year, maybe later this year. And um, there's a scene in a church that takes place in, that's in meeting in a bar on Sunday. Um, because I do find that kind of like romantic about the idea that you love God so much that you're willing to put cloth over the booze mm -hmm. uh, there's something there's something really sincere about that and although I found it fascinating and like like correct this idea that we need doctors and lawyers to join the church um, I also find it weird and um, there was something on Twitter a couple days ago talking about how if people don't want to kill you you're probably not as good or honest a preacher as Jesus Mm -hmm. which um a weird is comment. yeah it's a little overstated i mean because you know like mary and martha weren't thugs and uh oh, oh sorry it was it wasn't so much about the people want to kill you that the only that the people who follow you are all outcasts but they weren't all outcasts right like mary and martha were not cast joseph of arimathea was not an outcast at all um and um jesus never delivered the, like we need to recruit some doctors to join the church line that's not his line but he wasn't pushing away the elites too. And um, and probably like someone like Joseph of Arimathea is really important to get um, your foot in to uh, the culture. You need, you need some elites. So I think it's probably true, but it feels really weird and weirdly un-New Testament to admit that. So the difference here is that these guys, as we're going to see, they just built their own churches, right? And that yeah. is awesome. Right? It is really cool. Yeah, There's, that's also very romantic. <laughs> it is very romantic. The Berkeley Ward Church that we have, right? Um, yeah. I mean, you can probably tell me better than me. I can never remember, right? But it was essentially designed by the ward members, right? Uh, well, it was, it was the architect was Theo Ruig, I think is how you say his name. And he was he was a local Latter-day Saint. He wasn't in our ward, but he did design a few of the chapels that are in Northern California. There's another one of his is still in Sacramento. But then it was um, it was built by the members essentially and people that they hired. Um, while we're talking about J. Reuben Clark, there's another quote in here that I thought was great. Um, Bell S. Spafford, a longtime general president of the Women's Relief Society, oh. had worked for years to raise funds for a relief society building. Yet, despite her efforts, the project had stalled in Clark's office. His attitude was, "We'll let you know when we're ready." In frustration, she told her story to LaGrand Richards, who suggested a solution. President Clark is not the president of the church. You've got a new president of the church, President McKay. Go to him and tell him how embarrassed you are, that after having crowded the women to get their money in, you, that you can't go forward. The money is depreciating in value, building costs are increasing rapidly, and you're embarrassed as to what you can say to your women. Spafford did as Richard suggested, and within 10 days, approval to begin, had approval to begin construction. Yeah, and, Clark was always banging his head against the Relief Society. There was he was always trying to run roughshod over them. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like an interesting story in and of itself. 
Yes. There was an excellent dialogue fireside about this uh, a few months ago, um, if people want to look it up, which is an interesting uh, fact, uh, because uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, Aaron, but we uh-huh. are a proud <laughs> member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Yeah, we sure are. <laughs> Enjoy such shows as The Forum and uh, Back to the Block. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so, yeah, so our building was one of these hand-built buildings, essentially. Um, I guess all buildings are hand-built, if you think about it. Um, that was maybe more existential than intended. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, anyway, President McCabe took office and changed everything, right? He demoted um, Clark, right? Um, which was an interesting thing on its own, and there's lots of fun things to talk about that. But he kind of took over and he just said, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to make as many buildings as we can as fast as we can. And essentially what happened is that a specific fellow named Wendell, Wendell Mendenhall was put in charge of the building committee, right? He had been a rancher and he was a visionary and an energetic man, again, quoting from the book. He was a powerful fe- man who supplied entertainment ex- expertise for the Polynesian Culture Center on whom the, he had served. If he had sought something that needed to be done, it got done. Once he decided he was going to do it, it didn't make any difference what was in his way. He would do it. But perhaps the most important factor in his success was that, like his predecessor, since 1952, he reported directly to McKay and thus circumvented the church's bureaucracy. He had similar to the Miss Wilkinson story. Oh, sorry. Talked over the view. No, no, that's right. Exactly. It's just like uh, Ernest Wilkinson's um, success in the education program. He had the direct ear of David O. McKay. And, And yeah, the building program took off, right? It sure did. Uh, he is like a heroic figure in the sense of someone who, I mean, you can argue about whether everything he did was right or wrong or the best way to do it, but he had that sort of um, like great man theory of history, sort of like he's going to do it. He will He will part the waters and walk through and the world will be different on the other side. So... Um, awesome. I'm, I'm totally cool. That's, I'm into it. <laughs> Let's build buildings, man. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there were kind of, the kind of three things that made it work. All right. That made the building Zero. program work. The first was the donated labor, right? Donated labor. The second was the labor missionaries. And the third right. was a fellow by the name of Moyle. And you may recall, we did an episode where you put Moyle in the title of it. And it was about the missionary program. Yes. I forget. Remind me of his first name because it wasn't Henry Moyle. Henry Moyle. Oh, it was Henry Moyle. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. He had originally been a bit irritated with Wendon Hall, but as soon as he like became a counselor in the first presidency, right? Um, and uh, started working with him. He kind of just took off as an ally and just helped him out in an astonishing manner. I can tell you a bit about this. Listen to this story about Moyle. Um, Stephen Bird, an employee of the building department who was then working in England, recalled Moyle's abrupt mandate to start building buildings and getting property and stuff. He gave me a checkbook and said, start looking for properties, right? This was when the building program started there. This is referring to the European mission. 
And that's when the building, it was constant and tremendous growth, right? In other words, here's a stack of checks, go ahead and start buying stuff. So now we get to the kind of the two interesting parts of the story that I wanted to focus in on. Let's start with donated labor. Um, my uncle Spencer was 10 or 12 when they, um, when their family started building churches, right? And yeah. let's, let's listen to his words on the subject. How much of the actual building were you doing? All right. In uh, Idaho Falls. Yeah. Which was the first building covered under the terms of the new building program. Yeah. Um, my day, I would go to school. And then through special concession, and Idaho Falls is a Mormon town, really was then. Um, the bus would drop me off at the church building site. And I would go from school to work. And then I would come home with dad, um, usually around eight, between eight and nine o'clock at night. And so I would get a full day at school and then five or six hours at night of labor. On Saturdays, my day was to get up with dad and be at the church site at 7 a.m. and we would stay there till about 8, 8 p.m. We'd quit early on Saturdays. Now they kept a record um, of the hours donated. And as a requirement, for each ward, they had an allotment of hours to donate. When the church was completed, and the idea of all this donated labor and such was that they couldn't uh, dedicate a building until it was completely paid for. So when the building in Idaho Falls was done, it was also paid for. Uh, they didn't owe anybody anything on it. Yeah. And they had a big program. The whole state came. And in those days, stakes were huge. They have 10 wards in it or more. Yeah. Uh, and geographically, they were enormous. So they had a program at the end and the building got dedicated and then from the pulpit they read off how many hours each ward had contributed and there were wards with uh, some amount of numbers 500 hours 800 hours they got all done and the ward we were in had an excessive amount of hours. And they said over the pulpit that one person had more hours donated than any other person, uh -huh. the stake. And it was me with something over 1,500 hours, oh, which wow. a full-time job is 2,000 hours. Yeah, for a year. year. Yeah. We'd been there two years, so I'd had a pretty, pretty fair dose <laughs> of donated labor. And, I, and that same system held in Missoula as well. Um, 
Now, I'm sounding a little bitter. <laughs> and I know that. And I am. Yeah. I'm listening. And let me just tell you right here. I, I agree with the with that bitterness i actually think that donating you essentially built a church for free right and um i i don't know i don't think that the church should have done that i think that they should have paid for paid for it properly they should let me like they kind of, I kind of feel like you're owed something, <laughs> but you're never going to get it. <laughs> well, the government eventually agreed with you. Oh, okay. Go ahead. And uh, the labor laws were part of the thing that came into play on this because I never got paid a dime. Yeah. And I was underage to work. That's right. Which um, we haven't even met. We have, but I could we haven't donate. Mentioned yeah. I could donate all the time I had. Now, let me tell you what I did get. Uh-huh. I got an unparalleled education in construction. That's right. Absolutely unequaled. I doubt anybody in history has had a more thorough education in construction. Because dad would essentially apprentice me out to all the different trades. I did everything from a hod carrier, which is the poor bottom man on the totem pole that carries bricks and mixes mortar and builds scaffolding, carries it up to the masons and washes the equipment. Hod carrier is a bad job. I also worked for the plumbers in the days of cast iron pipe with Aladdin Oakham. I worked as an electrician. I worked as a roofer. I worked as a framer. I worked on a bulldozer clearing land. Sweet. I worked as a surveyor. Um, and each of these jobs had to be performed to the level of professional work because these were, these jobs, these buildings were expected to last a long time and they when I got to the finish work portion of my education um, my finish work was expected to be as good as any person on the planet churches were the house of God and when God comes home he doesn't want to see hammer marks in the finish work right he doesn't want to see nail marks he doesn't want to see bad joining so I learned how to do everything. And then now from Uncle Stephen. Um, members were expected to raise the money to build their building and to contribute uh, certain projects, certain aspects of the project were to be completed by church members, such as forming concrete under the direction of their supervisor, my dad. Yeah. And uh, they were expected to pour the concrete. They were expected if there was a plumber in the ward, um, it was expected that he would take an active role in plumbing the building using volunteer labor. And 
for the most part, that labor was freely and lovingly given. So um, what do you, any, before I ask you questions about those two segments, um, Eric, what are your thoughts? Well, as I was listening to, um, Uncle Spencer was the first we heard from, is that right? That's right. I was thinking about how much he must have understood about the process by the time he became an adult. Did he, did he follow that as a career? He sure did. After um, leaving the military, um, he uh, uh, worked for grandpa for a while and then eventually even took over, took over the business because the church shut down the building program at the end of the chapter here. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> and um, because of the financial crisis they all, they, that we're going to also talk about, they all kind of switched into um, more contract and a, a contracting economy, right? So eventually became kind of a contracting uh, program instead. It's astonishing that that's cheaper. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I wonder how we measure what's more affordable because um, I like how your uncle Stephen talked about how the, do the donations of labor were generally um, willingly and lovingly given most of the time. Yeah. Um, but I have to wonder that there weren't plenty of people who felt the kind of bitterness that, that um, Uncle Spencer talks about. Well, there's a real difference. Think about the difference between somebody who showed up for on a weekend for a few hours and then compare that to Uncle Spencer's life um, when he was a little kid, essentially, building church after church after church, right? His story is particularly unique in the building program. And I felt like it wasn't cap captured in the chapter. No, not at all. In the chapter. Um, uh, this, uh, you know, the mission president's kids, right? The guys that are scooped along for the ride, right? And in this case, worked, worked hard. Yeah. Um, so it kind of doesn't matter if it was cheaper to build it using contracting. I don't think it was sustainable to build it using, using people like unpaid. No, and especially not, you couldn't do it now because not every ward has a plumber, right? Like, like these skills are there, obviously they're still out there, but um, there aren't as many people with these skills. I would sometimes feel jealous of my brother and want to go hang out with my dad as he was doing practical tool-based manly things, but it was not sustainable. I, I could not I could not get interested in it. I just did not care how to fix the car. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not interested. I, I'm here and I'm trying to have a nice time with my dad, but I don't care. And he can tell I don't care. And eventually I, that was, I, yeah. Well, I might've I've mentioned this on the show before, but I remember, cause I'm a computer scientist by training, right? I, I work with my hands in the sense that they never leave a keyboard, right? <laughs> Um, but in grad school, I actually, um, actually did get, I set up experiments and ran them, right? And I remember one of the things that I had to do was prepare these um, leaders of growth media for bacteria. You take your 12 glass, glass flasks, you fill them with powder, you measure it all the powder, you fill it with water, right? Put tinfoil on the top, put some autoclave tape on it put it in the autoclave, sterilizes it, this huge pressure chamber, it looks like a bomb's gonna go off. You pull it out in this rich, 
clear brown liquid is in these hot flasks that you've created. And then later you do these things with these crystals and you set up these, these trays of growth um, where you grow these crystals in these tiny microscopic drops. And I remember just sitting back after doing a bunch of work in the day and just feeling satisfied. Yeah. Right? It is true, of, but it's more satisfying when you can see what you've accomplished. Right. I think there's really something to that, the, just this kind of work. So, but then, so some of the labor was, like you said, uh, lovingly donated and some was um, kind of conscripted. Um, but yeah, I mean, he did get a lot of good stuff out of it. And he's just, they're just amazing people. The, the thing that struck me at the beginning um, of Brother Spencer's or Uncle Spencer's uh, talk was, was when they were sharing the amount of hours everybody gave. Because mm -hmm. I've, I've read a lot of versions of that about how much money different wards donated and um, the sort of competitive spirit that was built into that. And I, I don't know that competition is totally in cahoots with charity. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure those things align perfectly. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, they track those hours very carefully. Uncle Spencer told me about the little slips that uh, my grandpa would fill out for every person, little receipts for all the hours that were tracked for all the donated labor. And um, I tried to ask Uncle Stephen why they did this. Were those little slips useful for anything? He just didn't have an answer. And you know, he, he, works, he works in taxes now. And I was like, well, yeah. is there some kind of tax incentive for tracking these donated hours? No, nothing. So they just, because the, the church, he said the church is a church of records. These are some, we of, are the records, some of the records we kept. That would be, that would be, that would have been my guess. Mm -hmm. So President Moyle, he had the idea of getting the Mormon image out of the gutter. Mission homes were kind of dumpy places. He kind of, kind of restored a bunch of this stuff, got the, the um, mission program, the building program going, and it really kind of took off. Um, one of the things they had was labor missionaries. Um, have you ever heard of labor missionaries? Um, not such that I could write my dissertation on it. Uncle Spencer. There's another aspect to the building mission part that I wanted to touch on. Okay. The building program also, it wasn't just about the superintendents. They also called young men on building missions, just as they called others on proselyting missions. Okay, so these are like 19-year-old, 18-year-old kids. I'm up to 30 years old. Oh, okay. From 19 to 30 years old. But these young men uh, were universally afflicted by what was euphemistically termed a mental defect. Mm, okay. um, some had speech problems, some had communication problems, some were, a lot of these guys were really terribly conflicted. They were homesick. They didn't understand where they were, why they were there, or why they had to work. And they had no place to stay 
They stayed at members' homes for a week or two weeks. And members would have to sign up to take these guys um, and feed them and make sure that they were at work on time. Um, a lot of my friendships that I had during that time were with these young men. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways at 10 and 12 and 14 years old, I was their big brother. Um, and dad was their father. And that's how he looked at it. Every morning, um, we had a shack, we called it the shack where it was an outside building that we built first thing when we got on the job site. And we kept, it was a plywood building about 12 by 14 feet. Dad had a desk in there, um, a sloped architecture desk. Um, and every morning, Dad and I and the missionaries would meet in the shack, uh, and when I was at school, this would still go on, but remember that school is nine months. I had three months of summer every year that I got to work <laughs> seven to eight, seven to nine o'clock on. So on these mornings we would have, dad would read a scripture and he would have a prayer. And then he would ask one of the missionaries to pray. And they were to pray specifically for safety throughout the day. Um, and we had very few accidents. We had a couple of bad accidents, but. Um, was... We're going to come back to that at the end here. I have a few specific stories that mom told me that I want to ask you about. We'll get to All that right. later. <laughs> Go ahead. So a, lot, a large part, oh, and these missionaries also got a stipend. Uh -huh. It was $3 a week. That's not very much. Same as I got. Okay. Oh, you actually, you actually got a stipend. I got three bucks. Uh -huh. Which, you know, For nowadays work, is worth- Working about seven three. hours a week, I got three bucks. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but that's like $700,000 in today's money, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, back then you could almost uh, <laughs> you could buy cars for that much money. <laughs> well, in fact, I did buy a car for ten dollars once. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, and then again, here is Uncle Stephen on this subject. That was a very interesting aspect of the program. Yeah, because uh, Dad was responsible not only for their work portion of their mission, but also their spiritual education which uh, mom was set apart to be their seminary teacher. And each morning they had uh, an hour or so of seminary instruction for mom, and then they would report to the work site. Well, that's interesting. And it was interesting because they lived with members and there were strict rules about what members they could live with and under what circumstances they could live with them. It had to be a home in which there were no uh, female children period at all of any age 
and it had to be a home that had uh, at least some record of parenting. And there were strict rules about no TV, no radio, those same kind of mission rules that go pretty standard and early lights out, bedtime, uh, pretty strict. And many of these young men that were called to that program <clears throat> had some difficult personal issues. Um, there were mentally challenged people. There were uh, people with that had made some bad decisions in their past, um, things like that. And they were not tolerated. They were sent home if they did those, if they repeated those things or if they had those issues, they were just sent home. Uh, so they were closely watched and a lot of them had some behavioral issues. I mean, it wasn't an easy program to administer, but I know that many of the young men that served their missions under my dad and mom's tutelage uh, considered them friends forever. Uh, up until the time they passed away, they still received Christmas cards from, I know of at least two of those missionaries that uh, remained in close contact with, uh, with mom and dad. And one of those young men, whose father was a very wealthy uh, senior executive, senior vice president of Kodak Corporation, um, it was not expected that he would be successful. But not only was he successful, he went on to complete his education and retired as a full professor at BYU. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's interesting. That's really cool. So I know that dad and mom touched lives in many ways. Um, the um, relationship you're describing is, sounds like one of a mission president to his missionaries and a mission president's wife to her missionaries. Would you think, is that a, was he responsible for these men in the same way that a mission president would be? Absolutely he was. And he was in fact set apart as a mission president. Okay. When he was set apart, he was set apart as the president of a mission. Okay, so before I hear your feedback, let me just read a little bit from the chapter, Eric. It says, um, a major factor in Mendenhall's success was his creative expansion of a church program that called young men into service in the building trades rather than the traditional proselyting mission. Such labor missions have been commonplace in the early decades of the church, but had largely disappeared in the first half of the 20th century. Then in 1950, a labor shortage in Tonga caused a crisis in the church's construction of a school. The resourceful mission president, um, Yvonne W. Huntsman, then called young men to work and receive job training on the project. The church provided housing, local members gave food, and the building supervisor taught skills. Successful completion of the project led to the program to be applied elsewhere in Tonga and then New Zealand, and then Mendenhall greatly expanded it. And then another part of the, another quote, everything was accelerated. Um, I could introduce you to hundreds and hundreds of young men who learned their building trade as in building missionaries, building chapels in New Zealand under the American supervision sent down there under the direction of President McKay and supervised by Father Mendenhall. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. It sounds like perhaps a different pool of young men was being tapped say in the islands as opposed to Washington state. 
mm-hmm. Washington, Idaho, mm-hmm. Missoula, Missoula. Yeah. So okay. So thoughts on on those stories? It's interesting, right? I mean, it is interesting. the The mental aspect of these men wasn't covered in this chapter. No. Um, it's also like it explains kind of the stigma that still attaches to a service mission. Um, like, um, I, I haven't known a lot of people who've done service missions. Um, and when someone is highlighted for a service mission in say news of the world between sessions of general conference, um, it often seems to be someone, one of these kind of disabilities we're talking about. Um, the people I know personally, they're people who tend to have like really serious anxiety or something of the type that makes it difficult for them to serve somewhere else. But service missions, as I understand nowadays, are always local. You don't go somewhere else for a service mission. So I, I don't know if it's a descendant of the labor missionary or if it's a separately imagined program. Or, and of course, I've, I've heard a lot about them expanding service missionaries for to give more people opportunities to serve missions and trying to take this, this sort of stigma off it. But, um, but it's hard because people, um, people maintain sort of their negative bias about such things and nobody wants to be tarred with that sort of image. Um, I'm really curious, like, like, uh, I I love that we're hearing the perspective from these people who were kids at the time, because I imagine that whatever clever phrasings or justifications uh, didn't stick to them in quite the same way that they're, they're being honest with us in maybe a way that say their dad might not have been if you were able to interview him. Does that make sense? It does. It does. As you heard, um, Grandpa, I mean, I didn't understand when I, I mean, I grew up, of course, hearing some of these stories, right? But I never really got a synthesis of it like this. And um, it's really interesting how he was a mission president, right? Yeah. Not just a building supervisor and just loved these kids, right? And really took care of them. Well, and it, I totally agree with this idea that it's a great opportunity for these kids. Um, you know, like it is an opportunity for them to reimagine themselves, which it sounds like the kids that were being sent to them, that's what they needed. I just think it's interesting. I don't know that I have like a value statement to put on this. This is something that happened. It's not happening as much anymore. Yeah. Um, but it's a story. You know, one of the things that one of my uncles said that he's glad to be able to tell these stories that would go away when he does, right? Um, right. It's just, this is just one of the stories. The LDS church, the, the chapels that you walk in, in Idaho, in Washington, in Oregon, in California, were built by these people, these real, you know, these people lovingly donated time or, in the, or conscripted in the case of some of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just really cool. Yeah, I keep thinking about Joseph Smith's comment that, you know, a church that doesn't require the sacrifice of everything can't give you salvation. Um, and I often wonder whether we're being asked to sacrifice enough. And at the same time, knowing that I'm not necessarily willing to sacrifice that much more. <laughs> it's uh, one of the, yeah, the law of consecration is one of the things that makes me the most nervous sometimes. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then there was a budget crunch crunch <laughs> um and things kind of like 
the church was like, oh my goodness gracious, what are we doing? We are out of money. I suppose this is about to come up, but your your grandfather's, great-grandfather's? No, grandfather's. Mm-hmm. No, yes. Your grandfather's letter was dated 1964, which I don't know if he was, how long he was called for, but that brings him up close to the era of the end. Yeah, that's right. How long, how long was the ter- his term of service? Well, he was building missions um, as kind of a supervisor for many years after this crisis hit as they were transitioning, right? Okay. Yeah, so he had built, he had already been building and then got this call and then kept going, right? But yeah, the budget crunch was hitting about this time and um, both of my uncles could, could track this, but it didn't affect them too much because they still were working, right? Yeah, I mean, because they are the unpaid laboring children of the man at the top. <laughs> That's so right. <laughs> they, probably, they probably get stuck doing it for as long as anybody. Yeah, I was, uh, the financial crisis didn't, didn't change that much for them. I mean, I bet you that it did. And, um, you know, but some of those effects might not have been seen by my uncles. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan Blodgett, an employee in the financial department who became the church's chief financial officer in 1969, summarized the problem. Throughout World War II and up until 1958, the church had accommodated sizable surpluses. The rapidly expanding building program and BYU expansion began taxing the church liquid resources by then. However, and deficit spending began. No longer could it be said that the church was living within its income. Deficit spending continued for about five years and then by 1962, a real liquidity crunch presented itself. Some writers claim the church was approaching bankruptcy, which is ridiculous. The church had vast holdings of real estate and other assets and virtually no debt. It had merely run out of cash. Out of necessity, the rate of expenditures was slowed in 1962 and then further curtailed after President Moyle died and President Tanner took office in 1963. So, yeah, they ran out of money. The deficit spending here that it's referring to is spending more than they were bringing in, which they did for long enough until they just didn't have any money anymore. They were building like a church a week or something. Or something. They were finishing like a church a week or something crazy like that. Yeah. They were building hundreds and hundreds of churches. And they were building them on the cheap. I mean, materials. And most of the labor was free or close enough to free. They had some plans that I thought the plan had what? Okay, so on page 209, it says the plan had been, right, to kind of say, to like build chapels and the chapels would attract converts and that would have to pay off any debt, right? Yeah. yeah one of the plans put forward was just to go, go into debt and start treating these things as investments. But, they, but a lot of the other members of the, of, of the quorum just didn't like the idea of going into debt, right? and kind of fought against it. I actually really like this idea of building chapels to bring in converts to pay off debt, right? It's a very, it's a very capitalist. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a growth narrative. <laughs> it's a very good growth narrative. But instead they kind of restructured themselves in different ways. Like for example, they raised the donated money allotment from 30% to 40%, that kind of thing. So in other words, in order to start building a chapel, you had to have in hand already 40% of the cost from the donated members in that area instead of 30%. So they did stuff like that to try to get themselves out of the, out of the crunch. Yeah, I believe the building fund on 
on your tithing slip that stuck around till the 70s or 80s i think mm -hmm. three factors combined to pull the church out of its crisis they cut costs they got more tithing because of like people were paying more tithing like more people were playing tithing they were they didn't increase tithing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um they put a moratorium on church construction um, there's a summary here on page 225. Mendenhall was essentially fired, um, unfortunately, and the guy named Graf took over. So here's what it says. If one focuses on the Graf years, it's easy to look with disfavor upon the excesses of the Mendenhall-Moyle years. Yet to do so is an injustice. Both Moyle and Mendenhall had a vision of lifting the image of the church throughout the world, of instilling in members a pride in their church that they did not have when meeting occurred in rented facilities that included nightclubs and bars and of using handsome buildings to assist missionary efforts. To a large extent, they succeeded in those goals in spite of the fiscal mismanagement along the way that shadowed their final months in office. Furthermore, as Blodgett pointed out, Mendenhall did some revolutionary things such as start the building missionary building program whereby members would be called to actually aid in the construction of buildings. There were problems with this program with poor quality buildings sometimes resulting but with adequate supervision from well-qualified supervising building missionaries, like my grandpa, <laughs> this was not serious. Many young men overseas learned a lifetime of trade skills under the program. But anyway, so they got out of debt, they got out of troubles and they built a lot of churches and it was really cool. Yeah, my, my, um, my net emotions for this chapter were positive, mm -hmm. but of course, I'm looking at it from a remove of 50 years. It's been great to hear voices of people who were there living it at the time, because as your uncle said, like, um, it's only those who live it who can tell these stories in the way that the people who lived in can tell them. Here's what I want to end on. I want to end talking about donated labor. This is, we were um, discussing it earlier. Oh, yeah, you said we're going to come back to it. Mm -hmm. Also, I think people will be interested in knowing the stories your mother talked about, which I believe had to do with injuries. Yes. Um, Although maybe that's a bonus episode. <laughs> that is a bonus episode. Stay tuned for that. Quoting again from Alan Blodgett. For me personally, it was a good thing that the church building committee was changed because of the excellent relationship I had with the new committee. Still, I can't help but wonder if more was lost than gained by making the change talking about like converting to contractors instead of donated labor. Yeah. The pace of the building program was set back by a couple of years and the local involvement was greatly diminished with the new contractor approach to building. I'm a romantic. I'm moved by all the faith promoting stories that came out of the Mendenhall way of building meeting houses. Few faith promoting stories were heard after Graf took over and he was all business. I asked Uncle Stephen a bit more about donated labor and the building program. So many mixed feelings about it. By and large, I really wish that the church still had some form of fundraising for your chapel and uh, some form of volunteer help on that. Those were times that members came together and became closer. Nothing ties us elders quorum together more closely than a service project. And uh, this was essentially what that was, was an ongoing service project. And so in that regard, I kind of wish we hadn't gotten quite away from that. 
from a realistic, pragmatic point of view, however, um, not practical in today's in today's time. I mean, parents today have no time for that sort of thing compared to what our parents had. Uh, there's just too many things. There's softball and soccer and and after school activities, and nobody ever gets a rest. We're in a much accelerated uh, society from what we were then. We were much more laid back and quiet and introspective and uh, just a lot of uh, good things about that that I kind of miss. And I, but I do realize that societally we have changed. We, we couldn't do that anymore. Um, even now having had positions that I was that I needed to secure help. Um, I've been in wards where it was almost impossible to complete a service project. I've been in other wards, the ward I'm in now, you could, we, you can literally, an unannounced moving truck arrive in our ward and within a half hour, there's five or six elders there to help unload that truck. And it's, it's a, completely different than some other words that I've been in, uh, you know, literally. So I think that the bonding aspect of the building program and the relationship and the sense of ownership um, on some level uh, is gone missing. When the word building in Tatchby where I went to high school was first built, uh, the members were heavily involved in its building, as we've been discussing, and no one wore their shoes inside for some time because the building meant that much to them, and, and they felt deeply in their bones um, the sacrifices that were required to make that building exist, and um, I don't get the sense anybody really feels that way about a new building. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't live in Saratoga Springs or some other um, nouveau Utah city that has a new building being dedicated every three weeks. Um, maybe people are hesitant to wear shoes on the, on the fresh carpet the first time they enter a new building, but somehow I doubt it. Um, I love it. Yeah, I don't know what the right answer is. I know that if I had to build my local church building, like right now, right? Like if I got a new job as a protein crystallographer in a new city and I arrived and I went to church and it was in a bar and I was asked to donate, you know, hours every weekend or every evening to build a building, like right now, right? When I could instead be- Well, I hope Twitter. Aaron, you'll bring your unique skills and make a Build a church out of crystal, sort of like Superman's Fortress of Solitude. That would be really cool. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I don't know I don't. if I'd really want to do that. Um, I'm kind of, yeah. I'm kind of okay with letting other people. But there is something build lost. The buildings and to like be happy that they exist. But there is something lost. And maybe it's good to. Maybe this is maybe just an advertisement to when um, the eldersborn president calls you up to help move a van move a van move a couch when they call you up to help build a, to move a couch maybe uh 
This is, you know, there is yeah. still don't this Saturday, for nine a.m. labor. Removing someone across the Bay to Marin. <laughs> That's right. I don't know how how dare they, but so it goes. <laughs> Um, okay, listen, this episode was one of the most fun that we've gotten to do so far. I really enjoyed talking to my uncles. I've, um, I got to coordinate the interviews, um, way more content than what we were going to use in the use than the interview was used. Um, they each told me a specific story that was fantastic. And we're going to put out a bonus episode, which is just a uh, story from Uncle Spencer and then a story from Uncle Stephen. So look for that. Um, just a, just about, uh, you know, life in the 60s when they're building buildings. And it was super fun. I'm going to, I'm going to end with a fairly uh, emotional moment from Uncle Spencer talking about Grandpa. Um, Grandpa was one of the most kindest and loving men that ever existed. And um, he's just really cool. And he taught um, a lot of people a lot about the gospel. That didn't have an easy life. He was a ranch kid and a farm kid and expected to do a man's work when he was old enough to hold a man's tool. I have more respect for him than any other human being I've ever known. I miss him. I love him with all my heart. Thank you, Uncles. You're the best.